Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Exert Breakthrough Laboratory podcast. I know it's been a long time since we put out a, a, a podcast, and a lot of you have been dying, you've been messaging support, been messaging us. When's the next one coming out? Well, we're super excited for this one. Uh, we've got a pretty good timing for this one, as we've got the, uh, the first, uh, I guess, first major race of the season. Uh, mm-hmm. First major race since the lockdown. Strata Bianca uh, coming yeah. up tomorrow. So mm-hmm. that will be an exciting one. Um, uh, I totally forgot to introduce myself okay. as well as uh, those joining me today. So uh, for those that haven't listened to us before, uh, I'm Scott here with the Exert support team. And I'm joined by Armando here. Hey, everyone. And by Dr. Stephen Chung. And I'm all the way still out in Niagara. Hey, everybody. <laughs> well, um, I wanted to kick this off. Uh, it's been a little bit since our last one, but we've been really busy here at, at Exert HQ. Uh, I was hoping, Armando, maybe you'd uh, be able to chat a little bit about uh, some of the stuff that we've been working on and some of the stuff that we've rolled out recently. So we've been busy beavers here. I know we haven't uh, really, you haven't seen a lot of new, uh, a tremendous amount of new features coming out recently. Uh, We have announced the chat capabilities. So if you haven't logged in, um, uh, you'll see, you'll likely see a little uh, notification indicating that, you know, some new new chat features are available. The way those are really gonna work um, are with the communities. So if you're part of a coach community, a coach community or a club or a team, each one of those has, will get its own chat group, so to speak. So you, you can think of a chat group if you're familiar with Slack or if you're familiar with Discord and these sort of things, it's, it's kind of like your own channel where you can chat with others, you can message others, you can attach documents, attach pictures, you can, you know, create little uh, groups that you can have, you can organize your rides, you can talk about rides, you can send links. It's, uh, it's a way initially for, mostly for coaches to communicate with their athletes. We thought this would be a really useful tool to create a much more richer environment for coaches to talk to individual athletes or all their athletes at the same time. So, uh, so yeah, looking forward to seeing coaches use this more and more Squads, obviously, because they're more uh, interactive in terms of you know sharing information. So we see squads, and we are planning a few more features. So this is really a start of addition, some additional features that will be coming available. Um, but certainly, do create your own club, uh, invite your members yeah. to join, make a squad. It's it, a squad. It, it, like if there's a couple people that you're routinely riding with, it's really nice there's a whole new discussions feature. Mm-hmm. So now uh, you can kind of create discussions on some of your rides and share them with people. And uh, it just creates a much easier way kind of to, to chat and interact with one another. It's, it's yeah. really handy. And it's web-based as well as there's, there's a, a desktop app that you can use to, to chat with. Uh, and then there's apps for your, your phones as well. So you could get your notifications, uh, you initiate those chats, uh, if you didn't mention, sorry, that the, you know, there's video and voice capabilities built into these two. So there's really a lot of capabilities that you have to communicate with your, your, your friends that you ride with or your, your club mates or the club create communications this way. And like I said, probably more ideal even still for coaches to communicate with their athletes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, we're really looking forward to kind of seeing, uh, I mean, I don't think we've even scratched the surface of what we really could do with that. Yeah, there's certainly so much potential and 
uh, really exciting to see how our users are going to start to kind of leverage those capabilities. Yeah, and we and we do have more in store. So there's there's a whole bunch of there's a roadmap of things that we're going to be releasing over over the coming months. So do uh, stay tuned. Uh, yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, we're certainly not. Uh, we've been very very busy here on the back end. We're just not. Uh, some of the things that we're working on are going to be pretty uh, pretty significant. So they're going to take a little bit more time to get ready. Oh, absolutely. Well. Uh, how is it uh, down there in Niagara today, Stephen? Well, it's been great. Went for a ride this morning, went for a climb outside yesterday evening, and the Niagara Glen is open for bouldering again as of mid-June. So my sons and I have been, uh, been there very, very frequently enjoying uh, outdoor bouldering. And the best thing is each time, I think I've been out there 14 times now, and I've managed to walk out under my own power and with the standard number issue of uh, bones. So they've been successful in that respect. And then I'm just putting the finishing touches on the, uh, the very final chapter of the second edition of my environmental physiology textbook, the second edition. So hopefully that'll be in this weekend and uh, that'll finally be off my plate. It's been over a year in revision of re rewriting it. So quite excited, but also quite excited to see it out the door. Yeah, certainly gives you a lot of appreciation for uh, a lot of those textbooks that come together. They certainly take uh, a tremendous amount of effort to put together. Um, I was hoping that you would also share with us a little bit. Uh, I know you and me have been talking a little bit about uh, kind of how you switched up your training a little bit recently. So uh, I know a lot of our users really like to uh, hear kind of what we're doing in terms of training and and the type of riding that we're, we've been doing. So uh, mm -hmm. maybe you'd be able to share with us a little bit uh, what you've been working on. Yeah, well, I guess this season with no kind of uh, club rides, group rides or races, I've kind of just taken as a challenge to really try, you know, an experiment on myself and really see how high I can push my fitness signatures up in all three domains and both uh, in the threshold power, the HIE and also the uh, peak power. So we've talked about it before that uh, one of the workouts I've been doing was to do these all out sprints, really focus on the mechanics of sprinting. And so I've been very successful coming out of kind of a weight building period or weight training period to hit some of my highest kind of peak powers that I ever have. So my peak power is about as high as it's ever been. It's, I managed to get it to about 1160 Watts for me, which is uh, great. And so then after that, I really, once I got the peak power up, I really worked on kind of getting, especially my HIE up, which has traditionally been a weakness or a limiter of mine, uh, not so much my threshold power. So uh, over the last, I guess, really since the lockdown, I've managed to get my HIE up from about 16 up to 26.5 with the, with the highest breakthrough that I've ever had. So, uh, yeah. so I've been quite happy with that. I've been doing a combination of both our favorite Ronestad workouts. And then I've also kind of developed a new kind of mashup between Ronestads and, and a slightly longer 20 minute. Many of us do these kind of 20 minute over under type of workouts where we go at you know, something roughly like LTP and then every two minutes or so do a burst. Uh, I've kind of taken it to the next level in terms of those bursts being 30 second Ronestads. 
uh, type of all-out sprints. So um, they're a little bit different than Ronestad's. They're obviously longer. The average power is a little bit lower because it is longer. Uh, I do my I do my uh, recovery intervals for about anywhere from a minute, minute and a half at about 200 watts, 190 to 200 watts, which is above my LTP of 170. And then I go all out in the sprints and they're usually at a, at a slightly higher effort than what I can do during the Ronestad. So instead of with the Ronestads, I might be averaging 300 and roughly 300, 310 during those 30 seconds. I might be up to about 330, 340 or more uh, with these uh, with these longer intervals. The end result is they uh, still get me a good breakthrough each time. And um, so I can always drain my MPA down that way. And uh, they, the last one I did, I've done kind of three of them uh, per workout. So three sets of these 20 minute efforts. And again, just throw in a 30 second all out every minute, minute and a half or so of recovery. And I've been getting about ridiculous XSS per 20 minutes. My peak was a 90 XSS in 20 minutes. And that got me from uh, up to 180 uh, difficulty score just to freak Armando out yet again. So, <laughs> And that was just in a 20 minute, but, uh, yeah. So the combination of the two has gotten me excellent breakthroughs. The other things I've paired with it is that I've really been super, super polarized with my training and I've maybe do one of these hard efforts a week. Uh, all the rest of my rides are just, you know, well below my lower threshold power, two hour rides or so at, at an endurance pace for me, it's about hundred and anywhere from 130 to 150 watt average. And then the only other rides I kind of do is, um, is mountain bike rides and, and where I just, you know, kind of let the terrain dictate my power short burst of five, 10 second all out kind of burst. And, uh, but between them, I also use the fitness planner to, and I only schedule these kind of real breakthrough workouts for when I'm in the blue usually for at least second day where I'm in the blue and then I really go all out and then I just do endurance rides. So the combination has worked really well for me. Uh, they've kept me motivated and they've kind of given me the biggest combination of fitness signatures that I've ever had. I, I really think so. So yeah, that's how I've been training over the summer. That's awesome. Uh, you forgot to mention one thing about your mountain biking though. You forgot to laugh. Uh, you forgot to add laughing at your grad students as they biff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we've both taken turns. You've uh, been trying some new uh, Castelli kit that claims to be snag resistant, and you've seen me actually test it by snagging onto as many trees as possible. <laughs> uh, I did have a question for you, kind of about your Ronestad and kind of uh, twenty-minute over/under mashup. Uh, I know for me personally, when I'm doing the, the kind of run uh, 13 sets, 30 on, 15 off, um, three times, I know I usually try and finish that session. Uh, you, a good session for me is around three and a half minute pure focus and 150, 160 XSS, depending on how deep I can get in the second and the third sets. Um, what kind of 
do you know what the difference in focus is kind of from the Rana said where it's very, uh, very hard on and then almost completely off, at least for me, for those 15 seconds on uh, compared to going really hard and then holding kind of near LTP? Are you getting a slightly longer focus that way? Yeah, it's a slightly longer focus. My Rana stats are usually at about four and a half to five minute, and these are at about six minutes, roughly. So they're more of the uh, roller type of focus. You're again, the average wattage is also a little bit lower because you're spending more time kind of off mm -hmm. uh, than on. But I still average about. 12 of these kind of on efforts per 20 minutes so kind of the intensity is still there but there's a bit of a um, bit of a more steady and longer kind of break during the recovery periods that's pretty good um how about you armando what kind of uh riding what kind of crazy riding have you been up to lately oh boy yeah so i've, I've had a little bit of an experiment with my own fitness over the past uh I guess it was a couple of months. I kind of started at the beginning of June. Um, you know, things started to change here in in uh, in Toronto, and you know, we've uh, we've been fortunate enough to handle the the COVID crisis fairly well. Fairly and well. so we've been moving through different stages of our kind of uh, opening up. Um, we moved to stage three today. We moved to stage three today in the city, which has been outstanding. So things are really have been really um, executed really well from the, both the government and the obviously the people here. So we've been really lucky in that respect. Um, but it kind of started in May, uh, end of May for me. Uh, I think it started. I was just under three stars when Sounds I started. Uh, so just around seventy or so, seventy-five training load. Um, and it just ramped up really, really quickly. So I am, I'm up well over four stars now. Uh, and so uh, there was like a long period where I was ramping at five and six and seven ramp rate. So that would have been, you know, aggressive two, extreme one, extreme two improvement rates, and doing that for almost a month solid. Um, and the way I did that, because I had a kind of available time, I was, I wasn't planning them. I was just, I was doing them because I had the availability in my schedule. So if I was reasonably recovered and I was yellow, well, I would go out and I would ride for three hours and I would put in a lot of XSS at an endurance pace because I was, you know, I was capable of an endurance ride. And so I, I really piled on the XSS, the low XSS through that period. Um, so much so that, you know, it's, we're yellow and, and red for a good part of that, that whole time in order to get that kind of ramp rate. But I was able to kind of manage it without ever feeling like I was overtraining. So that was the key. And if I ever got deep into yellow or deep into red, then I would take a day off and I'd say, okay. And the way I would do that, just a little trick for, for those listening, the, what, what you can do to see how deep you are in yellow, there's a couple of techniques. One is to see how many days of yellow do you have. So if you've got a week of yellow, you kind of know, you know, you, you're cooked. You're cooked. <laughs> you might want to take a day or two off and just, you know, take it easy for a little bit. Um, try and get close. One thing I went, one thing I did was I always tried to get close to blue, whether I was riding on a blue day and making it yellow or that sort of thing. I always got to that level. So I was never deep into yellow. The other technique you can use is take your freshness feedback. And if you're blue one day and you move up to negative one and it goes yellow, 
then you know, hey, I'm really, really close to being to going from blue to yellow, right? So I'm going from from uh, from fresh to to being tired, and so I would kind of do that too to realize, okay, am I ready yet for like a more intensity, and how much recovery am, am I going to require? So I was doing that further for that over that period, but I managed to ramp it up really, really uh, aggressively, extremely in in some cases. Um, and I'm at a kind of fitness level that I don't think I've ever been before. So certainly at a very, very high level for, for what I have been in the past and, and feeling healthy in that process. I've never at once have I thought, you know, I was overtraining and that I needed to, uh, uh, you know, really uh, take it down a notch. Um, I've had to almost like look at the, look at the, the training status and say, I better not ride today because I was always wanting to ride as much as possible. But really, letting uh, letting the data kind of indicate to me that maybe I needed to to uh, tone it down a little bit. But it's been a really interesting experience. I think something that is really interesting to me is is we've obviously got a whole number of different workouts in our lineup. But I mean, at least here in Toronto, the weather's been perfect like the last month or two for mm -hmm. outdoor riding now it's been hot but mm -hmm. it's been very dry a lot of outdoor riding and so a lot of your fit like a lot of your building fitness you didn't really do any structured workouts for the most part it was mostly outdoor rides is that correct well, for sure yeah so all of my training has been done through workouts but i knew that if i had an endurance workout I'd say well, okay well what can i do so i have i have these rides that i do in the morning people who follow me on Strava will see them, you know, they're called 90 by nines. They basically try and do 90 kilometers before 9 a.m. Uh, and, you know, and that's with all the stops and all the everything, you know, through the city. It's not like you're riding straight. So it's not an open road for, th for three hours. What, you, what I found was that kind of effort always hovered. It's like three hours of riding kind of hovered around LTP. So you kind of ride at LTP for three hours off and on. Um, you come back with a lot of strength. That's a lot of low strength. So you, you know, you can ramp up your training load. I felt I was comfortable ramping up the training load really aggressively um, with these longer kind of base, base miles. And I think that's standard stuff too, right? Any kind of training, you know, you go out and you just generate a lot of base miles and that can generate a lot of training value. And that's kind of what I was doing at the kind of LTP level, right? Push it as much as I could for three hours and doing a lot of those those seem to have worked really, really well for me. Yeah. yeah. So, but nothing like super rigid, no like strict intervals for you. A lot of it was kind of just outdoor riding. For sure. You know, you, you check your focus and stuff and you, you know, you know, you're when you're ready to do intervals and mm. when you're ready to kind of really push it. Uh, and that's when you would see the, the yellow and the red would show up because you're, you're obviously tapping into the high and peak inten uh, uh, intensity energy systems and you're creating that kind of yellow status that requires you to kind of take it back and, and do more endurance rides, that kind of polarized model. But you know, I didn't really do any kind of structured workouts necessarily, but I knew that I was fresh and I was ready to really go hard on, uh, on higher intensity. So I just added those to my daily rides. Yeah. yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, kind of transitioning or changing gears back to our uh, to our first topic or the first thing I brought up today, uh, Strada Bianchi. <laughs> Got any guesses, or is it going to be too difficult to uh, dif too difficult to tell? I mean, nobody's really been able to show themselves yet this year, so. Well, exactly. I mean, it's uh, there's no basis of form to sh 
to uh, make any predictions on. So really you can just throw any of the past kind of contenders and winners like Kiyakovsky, um, you know, Sagan, Van Avermaet, Stebar, Kim Wellens, Wood Van Aert, all of those, all of those guys. And, uh, you know, they're all kind of in a sense, very similar riders. And, um, but they're the ones that are going to, going to compete and do well, uh, obviously depending on their form coming out of lockdown, the, you know, the unique feature of Strada Bianca is a lot of gravel sectors and they're not flat gravel sectors like Scott and I know here in Niagara, but they're long climbs also. And uh, so besides all the things of bike handling and pack positioning and stuff that goes into making a good racer, you got to be able to get over those long gravel hills where I'll see the, you know, the effort is a lot harder than going on an equivalent asphalt paved uh, hill and then the big feature always is the finish in Siena the last kilometer into the old city is super steep so you remember a few years back Van Aert kind of fell over and cramped up and uh, struggled to get back on part way up uh, into the old city and then the final 200 odd meters you basically can't pass you're in a very very constricted it's basically a pedestrian street that you're racing on. So, uh, and then it's a downhill finish where you can't make up any ground. So it's a really unique finish. It's super hard at the end, even though the race is relatively short at about four, four and a half hours by pro standards, you got those long gravel. It's now, instead of being in March, it's in August, it's going to be blazing hot. And uh, so temperature, and stamina is going to be an extra factor that it might not be in March. And then again, you got that final super punchy hill with very tactical kind of uh, requirements to the finish too. So that that's how kind of Strata Bianca looks. And again, it's the past contenders that are going to be, be uh, the ones up at the four again. What will be interesting is obviously this will be um, the Vanderpool's first time at Strata Bianca. And uh, so it'll be really interesting to see how well he does. And then uh, trying to pin myself on kind of who might be other kind of new people at Strata Bianca. But certainly, I guess the big, big thing of interest, it's, it's the Welt and, uh, and mm. Matthew show yet again, uh, possibly, <laughs> except not on cyclocross, but on gravel and cobblestones at the end. Well, you know, that, that really brings up the idea of, of kind of what, what kind of signature would, would uh, you know, Vanderpoel and Van Aert, and how does their signature, which would give them success, let's say, through cyclocross, how does, why does that translate well to something like the Strata Bianchi? And I think when you look at really what, what you would want if you were a cyclocross racer is... Yeah, obviously threshold is important because there's lots of recovery and a strong threshold is going to allow you to recover. But, you know, it really boils down to, you know, your HIE, obviously your high intensity energy. How much power can you produce above threshold? Because there's lots of spurty, sharp, hard mm -hmm. efforts. Um, and those with the larger HIE capacity are the ones that are in the best position to compete in these kinds of races. And I think the same kind of applies with the Strata Bianchi. Because if you look at all of those that would, you would think would be competitive, 
they would be likely be the ones that could generate kind of really short, bursty, strong puncher efforts, right? So you're looking at, at that kind of the capacity to generate really high power numbers in that kind of four minute power range. And just so you understand what we're saying, when we look at the four minute power range, that doesn't mean that, that they're gonna have to hold their four minute power in the race. It's not what it means. It means that the combination of their threshold and their HIE, their high intensity energy and their peak power is such that that combination maximizes for them at that four minute power. So it combines both strong peak power, strong threshold power, but probably more exceptional high intensity energy. And that kind of combination really then manifests as a strong punctual power. So in that three, four, five minute range is where that's gonna lie. And then you're gonna imagine that, that, that they're gonna have that strength, that ability to really to push out that, that, uh, that power, that bursty power, both on the hills as well as on that final climb. And I think one thing uh, that might help some of our listeners kind of conceptualize this, and you did a little write-up on this uh, a little while back, kind of the, the story with you and Peter Sagan. Mm -hmm. But essentially what's really making those punchers, those breakaway specialists really dangerous over those like three, four, five, six minute efforts is uh, it might not even be exactly three, four, five, six minutes. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they have such a high peak power and such a high high intensity energy, they're gonna, their MPA is gonna come down a lot slower than yours. And so let's say you're putting out, uh, you and Peter Sagan are both putting out 600 watts. Uh, with your signature the way that it is, at least with mine, so I'll just say from, let's say 600 watts is my one minute power. Peter Sagan, that might, he, that might only draw his, his MPA from 1400 down to maybe 1200. And so he might bring me to the point where I, I physically crack and I get dropped by him and he still has plenty left in the tank. And that's just going to be because his HIE and his peak power are just so much greater than mine that even if I had the same threshold as him, I'm still going to get dropped by him because his, his MPA is going to come down much slower than mine would. And at the point where uh, my MPA were to hit that 600 watts, I either have to back off and let him go or... Um, oh. Or that, that's just it. I have to mm. back off and let him go. I mean, I can't, uh, unless I get a breakthrough, I can't, I can't keep going. So, uh, and that's really what sets apart a lot of these punchier riders is, is their just ability to generate a, a huge amount of power uh, kind of over those shorter durations without necessarily cracking themselves completely. Yeah. So if you look at Vanderpool as an example, you know, you think, okay, his, we're going to speculate, say, roughly his two-minute power will likely be in his over 700 range. So if you can imagine, you know, holding 700 watts, more than 700 watts for two minutes, it's an incredible amount of power. And those that don't have that HIE, like if you look at, let's say, I don't know, a Froome, you know, Froome mm -hmm. may only have, let's say, you know, 530 watts or something like that in terms of their their two minute power. So they, they're just not, they're not the same athlete. Like you just can't expect Froome to compete going up a hill or that final climb, which is gonna take a few minutes. They just don't have the physical capacity to keep up. So they just don't have that ability and the amount of, amount of power available to, to perform at that level. So that's really that distinguishing characteristic is that they can hold 
very high power for extended periods. Okay, so that's the nature of the, well, that's what a higher, a larger HIE capacity gives you. You can hold 600, 700 watts longer than other people. And that's gonna really, really what's gonna be one of the key factors to success in the race. Yeah, as opposed to somebody like Froome, again, where, where does the Grand Tour rider win things? It's either in time trials or, or in a, on a mountain stage. And how do they win on the mountains? It's not necessarily by going off on a, you know, 700 watts for five minute type of attack or two minute type of uh, attack. It's really, you know, you look at Ineos and what they do, they ride at, you know, whatever, 400, 450, 500 watts and just ride people off their wheels, right? So that there's only a couple of people left. So their threshold power is really, really high, whereas their HIE might not be that high because they don't need to. They don't need to go above their HI or their their threshold power for extended periods of time. They're just riding at such a high wattage because their threshold power is so high that everybody is falling off their wheels and there's no one left. Right. It's kind of an interesting thought uh, when you think of it that way. You get, you kind of have your shorter, punchier guys that are going to uh, just attack to the point that your MPA physically limits you where you can't keep up with them anymore and you get dropped and gapped versus kind of you look at the exact opposite end of the spectrum. You've got somebody that's so fit. They might not have the anaerobic ability to drop you, but if you give them a half-hour climb – they're going to ride at such a high intensity that, that they're, you're riding so far over your threshold, they're just going to battle of attrition. They're just going to bring your MPA all the way down until you can't hang with them anymore. Well, and, and that's always been the tactic around, around road sprinters. So, you know, if you're, if you're in a situation where you're, you're in a break and you're with a road sprinter, well, the only way for you to potentially win in that situation is to either break free or erode their MPA down to the point where they can't perform, they can't execute their sprint at the end. So that's obviously the tactic that you're going to try and try and, and you'll see that happen all the time. But that's really the road sprint. If you think about that, why doesn't the road sprinter have an opportunity, uh, let's say tomorrow? Well, likely, you know, their their MPA is going to get eroded too much during this process. So they won't be able to sustain. They don't have the, the threshold power and perhaps even the HIE to really allow them to sustain sufficient power to be competitive at the end of that race. It's just gonna erode too much for them. And so they won't be able to leverage the fact that they may have a higher peak power than the rest of the field, but that's gonna be eroded by the time they get to the finish line. And, and if the course doesn't accommodate it as well, which is kind of the other thing to keep in mind is, is how well uh, do you, how well does the course fit to your rider type as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why, you know, part of it is really understanding the nature and ideally, uh, by looking at your, your own past races and seeing what kind of demands they are and then really seeing whether you are there or not and training yourself towards that. It's like historically, I know cyclocross, um, you know, the, the focus is around five minutes. It's a breakaway type. So I know as I get closer and that's what, that's what our system does with, um, with the training, 
advisor is it as you peak towards that that period of the year it takes you gradually towards more and more workouts focused on building that kind of a breakaway specialist focus that five minute focus so it's uh, you know it's really important to understand where your strengths are and also to understand kind of uh, the strengths of of the course or what the course is demanding from riders so you know again this week this weekend strata bianca is going to be you know compared to next weekend which is supposedly going to be milan san remo which is kind of opposite end of the spectrum where you have uh, a much greater requirement on endurance in terms of strata bianca being about four and a half hour race where strata bianca or, or whereas milan san remo can be a seven hour race you still have some punchy hills at the end where where that is where you make the difference but you know it, it also places a different demand on the riders you still have guys you know again like alaphilippe who can excel at both but uh you know in order to do that they also have to make sure they have sufficient stamina and that is one of historically i think one of the challenges of milan san remo and its march time slot that you have one of the longest races of the year almost as the first it is the first monument and the first big big event for many people coming out of winter time and and everything whereas it'll be interesting to see now that it's in august where again given lockdown and you know lesser ability to train but you know this is usually when people have more stamina more endurance so you know in that sense is it going to make milan san remo easier because you know people aren't as stressed about the seven hour kind of effort because they're ready for it physically so that you know that brings up the other kind of dynamic that you know for those that are familiar with exert they're kind of they kind of know that there's this inverse relationship between HIE and LTP, right? And they know that also that LTP is the anchor point on which we look at how much carbs versus fat are you using. So we look at that as being kind of the key point where you kind of move from being more fat burning to being more carb burning. And that kind of plays a role in especially these longer races and even much more so in these kind of stage races where the conservation of your glycogen stores, your ability to kind of perform without tapping into and, and, and using up those stores during the race or during the course of a stage race, that becomes one of the, state, the, the distinguishing factors. So, so you may look at, okay, how can I increase my HIE and get my highest, let's say two minute power, but you may sacrifice by, 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 by working on that aspect of your and maximizing that capability, um, you may end up, you know, uh, losing in terms of that capacity to sustain longer efforts at LTP. So, so that's kind of where you know these these different race types really expose different types of success in terms of what fitness is required and how you would train for it. You know, for for Milan San Remo, obviously it's so long that that you'd want to have the capacity to conserve your glycogen stores, both how you race it as well as you know how you prepare for it such that to give yourself an opportunity to express higher power a higher signature towards the end of the race so that you can then those final climbs be able to compete get over them and be in a, in a position to uh, to compete for the win yeah absolutely. Yes. and similarly you have um 
it started with the Vuelta a number of years back, and now kind of the tour is taking it on to some of these uh, shorter, shorter, hard mountain stages in uh, in the middle of a Grand Tour instead of being these 200K kind of epic uh, six mountains slogs. The trend for peppering some of these Grand Tours with, you know, few years back they had that 65k stage uh but you know 100 120k stage and the whole idea is i think from the organizer's standpoint is that the shorter it is the more intense the racing is so it kind of requires almost a different it it it's a different challenge for a grand tour racer because you know theoretically someone you know like Froome who who thrives on, you know, kind of long, long being able to essentially outlast everyone on the last mountain. Now, you know, everybody is kind of starting fresh and starting those mountains, you know, at the same fresh level, whereas over a 200, 220 K mountain stage, you know, half the pack or half the pack of contenders is already kind of tired and can't kind of express themselves in terms of their full capacity as much. So now with these shorter stages, the idea is that, you know, more people can be in the game and can be disrupting the stage and the tactics. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's good. That removes that element, right? That element, uh, you know, conserving your energy to, so that you can then uh, be able to compete towards the end of these longer races. So how does that, so how do, uh, how would this translate into like a stage race, right? So now, you know, you, you, Obviously, during the stage race, you've got multi, you know, multiple days, three weeks up to three, you know, uh, three weeks for, for the event. Um, and, you know, the, obviously, you're, you're, you're looking to conserve as much energy throughout the entire race so that you can make it to the end. And so what kind of characteristics, you know, Stephen, would kind of be successful in that kind of, that kind of race? Well, it's more, again, you can't just rely in a sense on your pure aerobic fitness and, and, um, because there is, it becomes more punchy, right? People can go and risk a harder attack on, uh, on the mountains during, during those shorter stages, because, you know, even if they blow up kind of, there is somewhat less risk for them there's more potential for reward and there's a uh, less risk so so uh, is i mean that that's how you explain al-philippe like how do you explain al-philippe last year how does he how does this puncture you know hold the yellow jersey day after day after day in the tour de france how is that possible well i think part of it is just that uh, i mean part of it is racing dynamics he you know he managed to build build a lead and then he was just kind of preserving the lead kind of throughout and um you know as opposed to someone who is that who is kind of each day gaining more and more time we've seen it on a number of number of tours we saw it in uh, the year that i think it was 2011 that tommy volkler was uh you know far ahead and and again, it was uh, everyone else chasing him down and eventually him cracking and still placing fourth. But, you know, he, he staked himself to a large lead and he was hanging on to it. 
And then uh, the classic for us Canadians is uh, Steve Bauer in 1990, you know, took uh, four of them, took a huge, huge uh, 11 minute gap on the first stage and uh, Bauer ended up in the yellow and, you know, he hung on for the first, I think, nine or 10 days. And then it was Ronan Pensick. And then it was Kia Pucci who held on as the last survivor of that four-man break until the day before the end when uh, when LeMond finally caught him in the time trial and took took the yellow jersey for the very first time on the last Saturday before Paris. So, uh, you know, there has certainly been historical precedence for, for riders kind of taking – a big lead and trying to hang on as long as possible. You know, Alaphilippe's was, I guess, a little bit more unique in that he didn't necessarily have a you know ten minute gap like Bauer and Kiapucci had, and even Volkler I think had a five six minute gap, something like that. He was able to hang, build an early you know minute or two gap, and then just you know kind of defend it quite successfully. So it was. Uh, it was interesting that he was able to do that. It it just shows what a versatile rider he is to be able to excel in one day races, winning Milan San Remo, you know, earlier in the year, and uh, and yet still being able to go for day after day and Strada Bianche, and uh, and then on top of that, doing so well in the tour. So so with that, yeah, obviously he's he's, he's uniquely gifted, but there's also an aspect in terms of I, I think. I think the the teams have become much more in tune with the fueling and the nutrition demands of the sports. So they so they're using power data to now collect the data and say, well, we we have a much better understanding of how much we 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 need to replenish, how much he needs to eat, how can we do this without gastrointestinal problems, how can we refuel during the races. So there's this greater attention to the refueling demands and and how to do that most effectively such that he can be in a position to maintain his his carb stores throughout this this longer stage race so that there's probably some element of that as well is there not oh yeah absolutely i mean the sports science support behind them would be uh, much more what was interesting what Philippe was able to do was i mean the Koenig quick step did not come with a grand tour team right they mm. they that was not in their plans at all uh and you know they came with kind of your typical stage hunting classic stars like what philip Philippe was and uh, you know it and they had to adapt on the fly to uh, to take advantage of this, and so it was definitely hats off to uh, to the team to be able to kind of switch their focus so rapidly to not just kind of oh on a whim and a prayer hopefully he'll hang on. I mean he was in serious contention until until the last couple of stages, so it was um, it was really impressive to see, and it it again just shows. The other big thing with elite Grand Tour racers is their ability to recover, right? Their ability to just go day after day, you know, you know, putting in the miles, putting in the huge efforts and uh, doing what is needed to maintain your position uh, with the others and then be able to recover so quickly. And, uh, you know, both metabolically, 
physiologically and also psychologically mm-hmm. uh, day after day. And, and especially, you know, the challenge of being leading a grand tour, especially at the tour is you have, you know, an hour or more of extra time to your day that you're not recovering, you know, whether it's doping control, whether it is all the media podium ceremonies, you know, sponsor obligations afterwards that, you know, that's time that you are not spending recovering, right. Lying down, putting your feet up in compression socks or Normatex or whatever have you. And, uh, so that's also why a lot of pros, uh, you know, I mean, they're aiming kind of to give away if they get the yellow Jersey early on, you know, the, uh, the favorites, they're trying to give it away because they don't want that extra burden of, of leadership right away. Not only is it wearing their team out by having them ride at the front day after day, but they themselves are having more stress on them because they have less recovery time. So it's really unique, um, capacity and again that's the difference between a a one-day racer versus a a um you know a grand tour rider a one-day racer can roll the dice and say you know throw all my cards on the table you know with this all-out attack and uh you know and attack that day literally as if there's no tomorrow because you know who cares about kind of tomorrow as long as you win today. Whereas with a grand tour, you always have to measure your effort somewhat by thinking, you know, how is today going to affect me tomorrow? If I dig myself into a huge hole today, am I going to be able to recover tomorrow or am I going to end up, you know, gaining five seconds here, but losing a minute tomorrow because I'm not recovered. So that's, that's kind of the big difference between, kind of classics one day riders and the, um, and the grand tour riders. I, I think that brings up an interesting point. Like we talked briefly about nutrition and, and, and kind of what goes into, uh, refueling those, uh, athletes. But, uh, it, that brings up a very good point that I wanted to talk about, which is, which really is focusing on that focus and, uh, or sorry, the training load and, and form going into that event. Uh, now, obviously these, uh, professional athletes, they're not going to be rolling into the Tour de France with a training load of 75. But uh, just out of curiosity, just for myself, and I'm sure there's a lot of other listeners that, that are out there that would be curious about this too. But uh, like, I'm just sitting here doing some quick math. If we assume they're riding roughly five hours per day uh, at at least 60 XSS per hour, they're looking 300 XSS per day. So that's, that's a hefty amount of exercise. If you, they're doing that six times a week for three weeks, you've got to have quite a high training load rolling into that. And so uh, what I think is also interesting uh, to, to understand is um, kind of how, what's the course profile of those three weeks uh, and really do teams sh- like taper and do they show up ready to hammer day one straight out of the gate and like we talked about before and really build that lead early and try and hang on or you get other teams kind of uh kind of like the team sky the team Ineos mantra where it's just we're going to wear everyone down in the third week we're going to be stronger than everyone else it's like they almost taper to be ready for that third week instead of they look a little sluggish the first couple and that they finish strong so i think it's kind of interesting to think about it in in terms of of training load and form and in terms of how you're arriving prepared for 
a multi a multi-day event well you, you are going to see you know generally unless you're running if you like if 300 xss per day unless you're going into it with 300 xss training load you're going to see your, your training load increase so you know you figure they're probably in the 150 to 200 range depending upon the, the athlete that would be where i would speculate kind of their entering training load would be going into uh, this kind of stage race, but then you would expect that to increase. So they could actually gain fitness and get, and gain, they can uh, get stronger during the course of the race. Again, assuming they can get the recovery, adequate recovery, ad adequate recovery to express that fitness, but it's certainly not out of the question for them to be uh, seeing an increase in capability throughout the course of that race. Uh, again, obviously the caveat that they're getting some kind of ad adequate recovery, which is a challenge, obviously, because of the, the nature of the racing. But if you're, if you're like a Froome, if you can imagine Froome, right, and, and you can speculate his probably his LDP is, let's say, 380, right? So if you're LDP, a lot of watts. A lot of watts, right? So, so he basically can coast pretty easily at under like 370, let's just say 360, for argument's sake, let's say you went into the, uh, the Tour de France at that level or any kind of GC contender. I think you would imagine a true GC contender is going to go into the Tour with a fairly exceptional LTP. Because that, what that's, what that's going to give them is the ability to kind of ride in the pack, be conserve covered by your teammates, conserve that energy, ride at a really low wattage, almost a recovery level wattage in some cases. And that recovery level wattage is going to allow you to recover and reap the benefits of that additional training load as it comes in. So I think you can actually imagine that they could conceivably get stronger throughout the course of that, of that ride, of that race, assuming they're being able to get some of that recovery time during the flatter uh, stages or, or the rest days. Yeah, and the, uh, that's the traditional Grand Tour design has been that, right? You have, I remember going to the 2004 tour and literally it was the first 10 days was just pan flat. Uh, it was just, and, uh, and then it, all the climbs were stacked into the final week. And same thing. You always hear stories of the Giro d'Italia in the good old days where, where uh, Cipollini would just be ordering everyone to ride piano for, for the first, you know, kind of, um, you know, however long 90% of the, uh, of the stage. And then they ramp it up in the last hour kind of idea. And, um, so in that sense, you can go into it and build fitness as Armando was saying, uh, and you can go in almost like a little bit under fit and, uh, and be ready in that third week. Whereas the modern, tours are now are starting to make that a lot harder again it started with the vuelta of throwing in these hard mountain stages early on where you might have significant time gaps so you can't afford to you know come into the tour and kind of work your way into peak fitness for the third week because you may already be uh, you know losing a minute or more by uh, the end of the end of the first two three stages and uh, it's especially the case this year with two teams that are so heavily stacked. We have Ineos with, with Froome, Bernal, and Thomas, who are all going to be trying to jockey for position within the team, let alone um, within the pack. And then you also have Jumbo Visma, same thing with, 
Kreuzweg, uh, Roglic, and Demulin all, you know, they're battling everyone else, but they're also, you know, looking at, you know, making sure they're ahead of their teammates uh, so that they're up front in the pecking order so that, um, you know, it, it adds a lot of extra spice to this year's race, both the fact that they are having kind of a mountainous stages early on and also with that intra-team dynamics. And we've seen that before, too. The classic recently was uh, 2009 with Contador and Armstrong, where the first week they were just, you know, hammering tongs at each other. They were head and shoulders above everyone else, really. And they were just battling to, uh, to gain seconds on each other. And Armstrong gained, uh, I think, about 30 seconds with, with a couple of teammates. I think Cloden was in there uh, on a crosswind stage and, and that got him almost to the yellow Jersey. I think it was within seven seconds of it. If that Contador had, if, if he had that, then Contador would have to play second fiddle. Right. And then Contador a few days later in Verbier on a mountain stage, he attacked and, and gained back uh, enough time to make him kind of the, uh, the quote official leader of the team unofficially Armstrong was still undermining him. So that, that adds an extra kind of level of intrigue when you have that kind of infighting where you're trying to just gain that couple of seconds on your own teammates in addition to the rest of the pack. Yeah. But going back to the point you were talking about Cipollini in like the first 10 days, you know, you're always excited about the grand tours because the first you know, first couple of weeks, you get to see the sprinters, right? You, you know that the sprinters are all going to show up in the first, so Mark Cavendish and, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Viviani, all the great sprinters, you're all excited about where they're going to show and how they're going to perform. And I guess the reason why you, you see them in the first week is because they haven't had the kind of wear and tear on their systems over the course of the stage race becomes really difficult for them. Um, you know, they're, they're stuck in groupettos, right? That uh, time, time limits and make sure that they don't fall too far behind. And that's just there because they, they want to use up as much, as little energy as possible so that they can save their energy for those stages that they can compete in. And if you think about what a kind of, what kind of a road sprinter would, what they're looking for is they're looking for a stage where they can conserve their energy. Right. And they can go into that final sprint, whether that's the one of the first few races or is up the Champs-Élysées, Champs the, the final stage in the Tour de France. They're looking to have their NPA at its highest level uh, uh, going into that final stretch. And what leads into that? Obviously, there's so much tactics involved in terms of team tactics and strategy to ensure that they, they deliver that, the sprinter to that final sprint with that highest MPA. Um, but then obviously there's the skills that are needed to, to take that ability that you now you have and that MPA that you have at that, at that moment to deliver that to the line ahead of everyone else. So there's a whole bunch of other obviously skills and abilities that you need to be able to do that. But that's really the combination. There's yeah. really have that peak power, uh, have that higher peak power, have that high MPA, uh, at that moment when it's needed 
and then um, hopefully get and have the signature to back it up. Well, that's what I'm saying. So like, the signature is about peak power and HIE, uh, uh, well, and that's really and and obviously some level of threshold needed so that you it you don't erode your peak power in HIE at at, at uh, you know throughout the course of the race and and, that, and that's where you really see the uh, I mean HIE is still important in a road sprinter because you see that in kind of the classic archetypes. You had Cipollini, Pataki, who are these classic guys who, you know, they weren't burst out of the pack in the final 50 meters. They were drag racers kind of with about 250, maybe even 300 meters to go and have a really long, mm-hmm. you know, fast sprint. They may not have the peak, peak speed at the very end, but they're just like long drag racers whereas you have guys like Robbie McEwen and and Cavendish you know they are guys who who uh you know don't necessarily have a 300 meter kind of flat out sprint but they're the ones popping out in the final 50 meters 75 meters uh and really having that super high burst at the end so you still see differences in signatures not just kind of a matter of the the highest peak power wins, but you know, the HIE also affects that. And, and, you know, the classic thing that I've seen is, you know, again, when people do Wingate tests, one of the things which are 30 seconds, you know, all out sprints, one of the things we look for is their fatigue index in, and in how much kind of your power drops over that 30 seconds. And, you know, you would have a guy like Cavendish, who is a kind of a really punchy sprinter, burst sprinter at the end, he would have a super high kind of a fatigue index because he would, you know, have that really short all out burst, but he might not be able to sustain it for longer. Whereas a Pataki or, or Cipollini, you know, relative power, they, you know, they would still have a high power, maybe not as purely high as what Cav is able to do, but they're able to sustain it and have much less fatigue over that time. So, you know, there's, there's still a lot of intricacies in sprinting. So as you're watching those, you know, think about kind of both peak power and HIE is, is playing out in the way these sprinters sprint again. Greipel was another guy who was, you know, big guy who accelerates and then sustains that power for a long time. And that's really, that's shown in the HIE. So if you, if you can raise your HIE, that's going to allow you to maintain your peak power and the higher power levels longer as well. So the HIE peak power really only represents your one second power. If you had zero HIE, you could only hold your peak power for one second. So, so your HIE gives you the ability to hold on to power longer, right? And the, lo- the, the larger your HIE capacity is, the longer you can sustain those higher powers. So those with the big peak power, as well as the big high intensity energy capacities, are the ones that can hold the 10 second, 15 second, 30 second power. And so, so if you're one that has a high peak power, smaller high intensity energy, maybe you can only burst very shortly for a very brief period of time. Whereas if you have a lower peak power with a higher high intensity energy, then you can, you know, long sprints probably are more suitable for you. So that's kind of, if you, if you, when you look at the sprints, 
that's what you're kind of looking at. Is it a long sprint? You would want to favor somebody with a, a greater capacity. And if it's a shorter sprint, then somebody maybe with a greater peak power. Again, based upon also how fatigued are they entering in that final sprint? That's obviously probably first and foremost. And this brings up the point that uh, I, you already touched on, but I did want to touch on it again, just to make sure that it's clear to people. Uh, let's say you and I are both going for a town sign sprint. Mm -hmm. uh, the, even if my MPA, when we, let's say we're 500 meters away and I have more MPA than you, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to win because that MPA is still going to be dependent second by second on my fitness signature. Right. So despite maybe starting with a higher MPA, if you don't have the fitness signature to back it up, you can, you can still lose. Correct. And so that's something that I, that I think is important that you can go into. So let's say two sprinters arrive at the line with the same mm -hmm. MPA or at least very close. It's still going to be dependent a lot on what their, what their tactics are and, and how the lines they choose, but it's also going to be dependent on their fitness signature. Yeah. Who's going to win that? It's not purely because you have the higher MPA doesn't mean that you're going to win the sprint or you're not going to get up the climb faster than them. It, it comes down, the, the MPA is going to be affected uh, by your fitness signature. Yeah, that, you know, it's a really good point because, you know, we're talking about who, you know, who can be delivered to the final sprint with the highest MPA. That's, an, that's a simplification because okay. like you're right, someone may have a higher MPA it might just be someone with you know great threshold and and is able to conserve all their energy leading into it, but they don't have a, enough capacity to hold on to that HI that that MPA during that final sprint. Whereas someone with a slightly different signature may start with a lower MPA but can sustain it longer. They can hold it. Yeah, they can hit, you know, hang on to it longer. So again, that's another kind of way in which you can interpret what goes on in that final sprint. But it's, it's really interesting to think about all this stuff. Like this is the mm -hmm. kind of stuff that, I, that I'm starting to think about is uh, we start to see more uh, rider data get shared. I know uh, some of the races from earlier this year before the lockdowns, they're showing live heart rate, they're showing live power. Even with the, the virtual Tour de France on Zwift this year, they're showing the riders um, current power output. So it's uh, something that's kind of always in my mind is, oh, so I see he's doing 700 watts right now for a minute over that climb or whatever. <laughs> I wonder what his MPA is right now, or uh, I wonder, like, is he close to cracking? Is he trying to get everyone else to drop? Or well, uh, you know, it, it, for me, and, I, and, and this is a very con controversial topic, is you know the use of power meters in the peloton and how much should they be allowed to use them and under what circumstances. And I'll just say that what you're just describing would make it very entertaining for me if I could, if I knew that Vanderpool going into that final sprint had you know all this capacity left and he had 1400 watts and I knew that he should launch it because he has more power left than everyone else. I could see that happening and then he does that and he executes the perfect sprint to pass everyone. I think that to me would be very super exciting because you knew what he was capable of and then you knew what he did. And then that in and of itself would make that execution of what you saw so entertaining and especially because you can also relate it to yourself you go like wow look how much power he had at, the, at that final sprint and how long he could sustain it for that's nothing i could never do where you'd never you know that i would be it'd be amazing to think that i could actually ever achieve that in my lifetime so mm -hmm. i think that there's an appreciation you get it a better i feel anyways 
you get a better appreciation for what the pros can actually achieve when you start to bring their achievements into some kind of perspective that you relate to yourself, how that relate to what you've done. And I think for me, that would be like just this exercise is kind of interesting because you know, you're speculating on what, what they're able to do. Um, but it actually be, I think it'd be pretty exciting to actually know and see that information firsthand. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Hmm. Well, I think I covered uh, all the topics that I had listed for today. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that, uh, that you felt that we missed out on, Stephen? Well, I think one thing is uh, we talked about before it went to air is, is one thing we can apply to our own racing. One of the common kind of tactics or things that you hear is, and it's certainly true, is that the best time to attack isn't when everyone else is fresh. Right. The best time to attack is when you're in the gutter and everyone else is in the gutter. Right. That's where kind of the elastic snaps. And I think there's a relevance to whether that is kind of not kind of in the middle of the hill, but at the kind of at the top of a of a hill where everyone is just has that mental letdown and then you go for that extra, you know, 15, 20 seconds and you can make a big gap that time. And I think part of it is comes down to, again, you know, at the top of a hill, everyone's MPA is down near, you know, down quite drained. And it's who can eke out that last little bit of, of MPA, both kind of physically out of their tank and also mentally out of the tank. So that's where the, um, the difficulty score also comes in is that, you know, you you may still have MPA left in the tank, but if it's you're already at such a higher than normal difficulty score that you can't kind of, you know, in a sense, force yourself to drain that MPA, that's where, you know, you end up getting dropped as opposed to someone, again, you and I, Scott, may have the same MPA at the top and, you know, even our HIE may be different, but, you know, if I am used to the sensation of 170 difficulty score and you aren't, you know, that's, (laughs) that's where kind of the gap can also happen. So, I mean, that's kind of the neat thing with difficulty score too. It's just, it, it kind of brings a bit of that whole kind of, um, you know, central capacity and kind of, almost psychology into it of just how much kind of discomfort can you handle? Well, I think it, it, it makes sense too. I mean, you don't want to throw yourself into the blender when everyone else is fresh. Uh, Cause they're, they're going to be able to kind of respond to respond to that right away. Uh, and then you're just kind of hurting yourself. And then if they're working with other people, you're just kind of uh, hurting yeah, yourself. Just the to be classic is, is you're in a tailwind in a peloton and you feel super fresh. It's like, oh, I'm flying. I'm going to go attack now. Well, you're going at, you know, if you're already going at 60K an hour and you are, you know, like spending a huge amount of wattage to accelerate yourself to, you know, 65K an hour, the package is going to laugh at you, right? Whereas if you are, you know, at a relatively slow speed at the top of a hill, that you've just crested at 15K an hour and no one else is able to draft off you. And it, it, uh, you know, it takes a l- less to accelerate mm-hmm. 
to, you know, from 15K to 20K an hour than it does from 60 to 65K an hour, right? So for just that little bit of investment, and unfortunately it happens when you're already in the gutter, uh, you know, you can make a lot more gain that way. So, I mean, that's, that's where kind of that tactical kind of saying comes in of, you know, don't spend your cash when everyone else is fresh, you know, and you're fresh, spend it when everyone else is groveling and so are you. And I, and I think that's, that's also a distinguishing characteristics of some of the, the great racers and the great, the mm -hmm. great champions is their ability to really dig deep um, when difficulty score is high, when their MPA is down, they're still able to get and, you know, find that capacity to still perform and put out some wattages, knowing that they can withstand that and that others aren't able to. And so, you know, those are the great, those are characteristics of a lot of the great, you know, you think of like something like, uh, something like DeGent, right? What he needs to put himself through to be, uh, to have the ability to win in a break, like the things that need to go right for you to win in a break and how hard you need to dig and what you need to execute to actually make that break happen and to win in a break. It's just, and just it's incredible what, what, what it would take to, to be able to perform at that and, and, and execute and win at that level. I think that's not something we easily, we just think, you know, he's a breakaway specialist, right? Okay. So this is, you know, he's able to kind of go free and nobody can catch him. Well, that's a simplification. Obviously, there's, there's so much there, there, the tactics involved are, are extremely intricate. Uh, you know, obviously, who he, who he breaks with, when does he break, how much is left, what's the terrain like, all those things play a key factor in his success. But obviously, he has to have the fitness and the capacity. So, you know, whatever, you know, generally, it's going to be, let's say, five minute, four minute power at, at an extremely high level both to enable to generate the break and so you sustain that break. But I think what, what Stephen was saying is that's the other side of it is knowing that you can do that when everyone else isn't willing to, and whether that's they're not willing to try and bridge uh, or they're just not willing to try and catch you or they're not willing to try and close the gap um, because it's just they're in a, not in the position where they're either capable or willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's when you have the opportunity to win in the break. Yeah. I would also say that, you know, those guys who are always famous for getting into breakaways, the Volklers, the, the Gantz, the Jens Voigts, what also marks them is that they can tolerate a very high difficulty score because, because unlike kind of, uh, you know, the sprinters who are easing into the stage and kind of hiding in the pack and kind of generating a high wattage at the end, these guys spent the first hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours fighting constantly doing all these attacks to break away. So, you know, and then they're doing a team time trial for the rest of the stage. So they are front loading all of their effort draining their MPA down, you know, in Over badly in the first, first hour. And then, you know, riding essentially pretty near their threshold for the rest of the time with their MPA drawn down, generating huge amounts of kind of XSS and, and uh, huge amounts of difficulty. So that's, what's unique about them too, that they're able to tolerate this super high difficulty score. In addition to, you know, having this, 
kind of a physiological makeup. Yeah, and it's so hard to to get that appreciation without understanding these dynamics or quantifying. You're quantifying both what what they're capable of in terms of their actual signature and how much they're able to withstand and how they're able to repeat bringing down that MPA and expressing every ounce of fitness they have over and over to the point where their difficulty scores are so high. You know, we know it as exerters, we kind of see that in data and go, wow, that's incredible. I remember how difficult it was to get my difficulty to 150 or Stevens, you know, obviously gets over 200 sometimes. So, you, you know, you have a different level of appreciation, but you know, you, you get, you understand that. And so if we knew, for example, what, uh, you know, DeGant was, what level he was at, it, we would be like, wow, that's, that's so impressive. And we know inherently that's probably what, what it takes because we're speculating what, what it's going to take uh, and it kind of makes sense. Like, I think it'd also be kind of cool to actually see that in action at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'd be incredible. Yeah, unfortunately, I guess I have a huge uh, tolerance or difficulty score, but a pop gun, pop gun uh, lawnmower engine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're, they're pros for a reason, right? So, yeah. But definitely, definitely a very interesting thing to think of. Uh, I'm glad that you, uh, glad you remember that. Uh, definitely, definitely interesting. Yeah. Um, that's, that's everything that I had had. Um, so I think we had a really good discussion today and I think, uh, I think the users are going to find this one to be a, a really well, helpful and really interesting podcast. So, um, go and, Vanderpool. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, 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 I'm a big fan of Sagan. So right, I'll be cheering right. for him. Tomorrow. Okay. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Walt Van Eric man. Yeah, I know. Oh, all right. Van Eric, definitely. There we go. All right. Um, well, I did want to thank everybody for tuning in to yet another episode. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's, it's been awesome seeing the great feedback that we've got from these so far. Um, I know uh, we get really excited to put these together for you and, and we really hope that you've been getting a lot out of them. So. Uh, oh, and don't forget yeah. Steve Barr, another uh, multi three-time cross coach oh, former Strata <laughs> Bianchi winner. You're so non-committal, are you? No. no. No, he's just going to call them all. Any cross know? rider is uh, close to my heart. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Yeah, thanks, and everyone. We'll see you next time. Yeah, bye for now.